This is Padmaja Kumari Parmar. I'm from the Udaipur family and the president and founder of Friends of Mewar. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with Padmaja Kumari Parmar, daughter of the House of Mewar, the former royal house of Udaipur in Rajasthan. Stay tuned. Dynasty, legacy, heritage, culture, and values. These are words that actually live in each of us, as in our own way, we're all constantly synthesizing information and learnings from the past into present actions and outcomes. And those words also often serve as powerful motivations for the future. And speaking of motivation, thank you so much for listening to this and for sharing it with your friends and family. If you've been enjoying these, thanks also for rating, downloading, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And for following Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. Now those words, dynasty, legacy, heritage, culture, and values, they certainly resonate for those in the diaspora, living outside of India and South Asia, as much of what tethers us back to the geography lives through a very dynamic evolution. You know, it's an ongoing definition of what then and now and there and here mean to each of us. And for someone like Padmaja Kumari Parmar, I know this takes on a different shade of meaning perhaps. Padmaja is the daughter of the House of Mewar, the formal royal house of Udaipur in Rajasthan, India, the world's longest unbroken serving dynasty. She grew up in Udaipur with a lived experience of being a child with type 1 diabetes, and after spending time in college and working in the United States, decided to devote her time, effort, and energy to a career in philanthropy, healthcare prevention, and hospitality. Padmaja is the executive director for business development of the HRH group of hotels owned by her family. And as a custodian of her family's living tradition that spans over 1400 years, descending from Bappa Rawal, Rani Padmini, and Maharana Pratap, Padmaja founded Friends of Mewar, a foundation in 2013 which aims to preserve cultural heritage, provide access to preventative health care, and promote women's empowerment and education. She's used her platform to help particularly empower and educate women, often living in poverty and without advocates. She's also helping to counter medical stigma and disinformation and preserve the cultural heritage of Mewar through research, art exhibitions, and conservation. She splits her time these days between Boston and Udaipur, weaving the inspiration and motivation brought by her living tradition into her daily life as a parent with young children. We caught up recently to chat, and since I haven't ever shared a conversation with someone from a royal house before, I was curious about if she remembered first being aware or conscious of her family's legacy. Um, you know, I, I say this with utmost humility and, and respect. Um, it's, of course, something I'm very proud of. But the question that you're asking, you know, when did I become conscious? I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I was never conscious or if I was always conscious. It, it sort of falls in 
one of those extremes. Uh, but having said that, it's been an important, one of the most important values for our family um, of being very, uh, just knowing that we're truly custodians and, and yeah. remembering that part of, of the value system. So uh, um, I think that's what I take home uh, with uh, with this thought, with the family, um, what have you. So um, do, do you remember when you were growing up at all that there were any particular aha moments that made you perhaps more aware of that custodianship and, and the importance of it, as opposed to the everyday matter of fact of being a kid and, and a teenager, perhaps? You know, my uh, my parents, have, of course, like everyone's parents, have, have played a, a very vital role. And I just feel just always remembering um, the decisions they made, um, the actions they took. Um, it always felt more than just them thinking about either just themselves or us. Yeah. Uh, they always felt that there was a thought process that included um, something much larger than uh, than us. Um, and, um, and that continues. Uh, and um, so I think those aha moments were very consistent, which is why there might not be just one example yeah. to be able to share at this point. But, um, and, you know, as one grew older, even some of the business decisions um, and having returned from, from the U.S. and being a real whippersnapper, I, I questioned that. Um, and the answer was um, what you've just touched upon. Um, they've always felt that uh, one is responsible for, for this legacy um, to the best of our ability, really. Almost a collection of different uh, experiences and memories that sort of make a big whole. Do, do you think, I know your kids are, are relatively younger, but do, do you think they have a sense of this or they're growing into a sense of that? Very much so, I feel. We've been very fortunate to um, uh, having had them spend um, extended amount of time consistently um, in Udaipur. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that they're fluent in the language and have been exposed to so many of the festivals and, and rituals and what have you, I think they're very um deeply seeped uh, in in it uh which i think is is wonderful because it it's helped me teach them a value system which i would have otherwise had to do anecdotally yeah and it it just it feels so rewarding in ways to know that uh, the association the connection is truly healthy uh multicultural and um um so my husband and i have truly enjoyed uh being a part of that journey for them so far. You, you were part of a painting exhibit featuring Royal Udaipur at the Smithsonian National Museum last year. And, and I'm curious about for you, kind of what it means to be part of a living heritage, not just something that's sort of nostalgic about the past, but something that's actually living and evolving. I think if I had to use, um, if I had to give an example of something that was most important, it would be this part. Um, it's sort of to go back to your original question about the legacy. I think it makes it so real um, for us and for the generations to come uh, because it's a living heritage. Um, one is learning about it, not by just reading about it, but by truly being a part of it. Um, and of course, having um, had have this exhibition come to the Smithsonian uh, Museum, uh, where the family has lent um, its um, 300 year old paintings um, to an institution over here, 
it's been emotional would be uh, an understatement. It was overwhelming at times, of course, a matter of great, uh, great pride and, and, uh, and for all of Udaipur, I mean, this is not sure. specific to, you know, um, our museum or our family or what have you. This is truly bringing Udaipur uh, to the international platform in a manner that, um, that is new yeah. for people to be able to truly view Udaipur outside of what they may know so far or may not know at all. There's, you mentioned the sort of emotional um, aspect of this. I, I read a quote that you mentioned from your grandfather, Maharana Bhagwat Singh Ji, um, that if the traditions created by the people of Udaipur or any other place are, aren't preserved, then what will there be left to inspire the nation and invigorate self-reliance and self-respect and integrity? When you hear that or when someone else hears that, whether they're from Udaipur or not, what do you think some of the emotional um, ties are to that statement, that that sort of feeling that is sometimes just really hard to describe? It, it truly is. And, and I'm delighted to hear that you are saying that as well. So, uh, um, And I think that is the point of, uh, of bringing this up. Um, the idea has always been um, to connect to the larger picture of it, for it to be understood as not something that's been specific to one member or just the mm-hmm. family. This is where I think the fact that uh, we're really committed to, to the city, to the community, to the people as a, as a whole yeah. um, is what is trying to be shared. And, um, and just, you know... Knowing this is what truly gave uh, rise or an inspiration to me to uh, uh, to continue to do the work that I do, to continue to stay inspired in the initiatives um, that are associated with Udaipur. Um, so um, it can, and again, uh, to your point, it stays relevant even today. Although you know this was made three generations ago, right? Yeah. This comment was made generations ago, decades ago, uh, but. The fact that it's continuing to inspire us today, I think um, he's uh, he's uh, put it rather well. Yeah, yeah, and and in thinking of that, that the comment was made, you know, decades ago. The legacy's been over, you know, hundreds of years, fourteen hundred years. Are you now a part of that kind of active evolution, and in some ways, kind of the globalization of that living heritage, uh, especially as uh, member of the Boston community, and for that matter, as a parent? I would truly like to believe so. And um, and I feel that I believe that for a simple reason, because I'm truly inspired by this. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that's really the only reason. Otherwise, one doesn't need to. One, one is not, um, or rather I should talk for myself. I, I do have a habit of saying we and one when, when yeah. sometimes I'm really talking about myself. Well, and, and by the way, that's hard not to, right? Because of what you represent, but at the same time, it's a it's a representation of something that's far, far bigger and yet removed from the natural sort of habitat of, of being in India, in Udaipur, as part of Mewar, and that sort of cultural society removed in, an, in a kind of American culture, if you will. Exactly. I mean, physically being removed and which is why I feel that unless um, and this goes for anyone trying to do work of this nature, unless you're inspired by it every second of of, of, the, of every moment, um, it makes it irrelevant. Yeah. 
Um, so, um, so to come back to your specific point, um, I, I feel very connected and I feel connected because I feel inspired. I feel inspired by the people of Udaipur. I feel inspired by the sort of work Udaipur is doing, um, the landscape, which is one of the most popular aspects of Udaipur. But, but thanks to the, these paintings coming here, there's so many other parts and attributes of Udaipur that are coming to light. Yeah. Um, You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Padmaja Kumari Parmar. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, this is Madhuri Dixit, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with the founder of Friends of Mewar, Padmaja Kumari Parmar. Do, do you think of this, and I think you've you've shared this and being inspired by it probably is obvious, but you know, in a way I imagine that the culture, the people, um, it's part of your extended family and therefore it sort of fuels a lot of, of inspiration in that way, does that sort of allow for it to be easier to connect because it feels more like family and it feels like it's much more baked into who you are? You know, I have to be honest, it it didn't quite uh, feel like this or I wasn't quite as clear about this till I moved um, to the U.S. Huh. Um, so maybe that um, physical distance was required for someone like me to be able to come up with something more specific and tangible for me to do, which uh, which can be impactful. I've always been driven by work that feels impactful. Um, but in order for me to come up with um, Friends of Mewar, for instance, or um, to be associated or connected with the, with the sort of projects in Udaipur, um, truly came into being after having come to the U.S. and after a few years of being here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and struggling for the first few years of not really understanding or knowing how do I put all of this together when the physical aspect of it is removed. Um, so, um, so this has been a journey. I think it continues to be a journey. Um, I, I feel I've, I've overcome the, uh, the struggle aspect of it or the lack of clarity, all of which I, I went through. Yeah. And, um, and I was pushed on it, uh, also, um, by people. Um, so I, I think it hasn't been a straightforward road. Did, yeah. Have I always known that it was going to end up like this? No. It's almost like it feels like it needs to be nonlinear in order for it to actually grow and mature and evolve. And, and it's interesting that, you know, perhaps the distance or the being away from both your, you know, close family and your extended family of, of Udaipur um, required, almost it was required uh, to have that step in between. Um, and I don't know if, if now at least it makes 
visiting or participating in this kind of work that much more meaningful? I I definitely think it does, and and yeah. uh, I do agree with you. I think maybe I struggled as much as I did because I consider myself very linear. Yeah. And the fact that I was removed from that environment without truly really being prepared for it uh, was was part was was a bit of a jolt. Yeah. But yes, has that helped me grow into a, a, a or add a different perspective? I I would like to believe so. Does that prepare you to help? as the future unfolds and, and help that custodianship evolve even more because of the experiences that you've had and because it hasn't been linear? I mean, that's been the goal and the plan. I, I think yeah. as far back as we can, we can think, I think every generation has toiled with this question and sure. will we be able to do what, what our ancestors have done? Will we be able to uh, overcome some of the challenges or a lot of the challenges uh, will we be able to survive another 1,400 years? These are questions that I toil with almost every day. And and it helps me clarify my actions, right? Yeah. Because uh, it has to fit into that mindset without taking the fun away, right? I mean, and right. I do have some of that tendencies as well. Like I can get quite serious. You probably picked up on that a little bit. But, uh, but I remind myself that, uh, you know, for something to sustain, um, there has to be a level of uh, interest and lightness and fun and 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 what have you. And it's hard it's hard to motivate if you are not really rewarded by that joy and that fun and and that idea that it's it's go it gets uh, some sort of cyclical rejuvenation all the time. And, and forget oh, about forget about uh, fourteen hundred years. Congratulations on eleven years of running. Friends of Maillard, um, you know, that anniversary must be really special. And, and hopefully there's lots more of those. What have you learned in those 11 years about that kind of extended family of people and, and particularly women um, in some of the more rural areas of Udaipur and just sort of that experience overall? Have there been some particular lessons that have surprised you? I think a lot of the lessons have surprised me. And again, mainly because I, I wasn't quite coming into it with the amount of clarity I have now. I, I, I didn't quite have that then. Yeah. And as exciting as it was to uh, to celebrate the anniversary for Friends of Maywar, it was, of course, a time to be able to reflect back as well. You know, I, I um, you know, this is the first time I'm, I'm verbalizing this, but I just felt that I had a very slow start. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to be able to do a lot more. Um, and my vision for the first 10 years of Friends of Mewar was probably very unrealistic. And I don't think it, it was or it is because I'm just slow at executing. Yeah. I don't know what my siblings would say to that, but <laughs> I feel that that hasn't been the case. It's truly being true to the value system, making sure that I wasn't cutting corners where um, it was important where I wasn't forgetting where we come from and who the people of Udaipur are and what we stand yeah. for. Um, the fact of the matter that we've survived as long as we have, um, I've had to have a dif different perspective of time. Yeah. And that was a big learning lesson, right? I mean, I would have, I have friends, I've had friends who've been able to do things in a much shorter period of time. Yeah. Um, and I soon realized that at times, it's it's a, a lot faster to put something together, which is glass and chrome, as opposed to something that's seeped into 
over a thousand years of, of culture and history. Um, so that's that's been a big learning experience. I, I think I've become more patient since. Yeah. And of course, having the privilege of, of working with women, which is a big area of Friends of Mewar, um, has reinforced that, um, has reinforced this fact. Does the patience that's required that you've gained over those you know, years and learning that and kind of a, an important lesson, how do you balance that with some of the issues and some of the barriers that are just so pressing, that are so, they require such immediate attention, particularly when it comes to dissolving some of those important barriers that exist for women, for children, for health, especially in some of the rural areas. That that must be a struggle for sure that, yes, it requires patience, and yet there's still such an urgency to some of these things. Um, you, you've hit the nail on the, uh, on the head, Abel. You're absolutely right. There are certain aspects. How do you say to that, oh, let's just wait six months? Yeah. Um, or let the funds come in and the, then we'll put this clinic together, which is, you know, almost 50 miles away from anything even close to being a clinic and one can't. Yeah. And um, and I'd like to believe at, at times like that and for decisions of this nature that we're speaking about where time is a privilege, not a choice. I have enough wisdom and wherewithal to expedite and accelerate. And, uh, and to go back to what you were talking about, I mean, these are some of the aspects that I've truly learned from the work I've done with women, yeah. to be able to have that balance and to be able to have that wisdom and to bring it at moments and times when it truly matters. And you don't want to be burnt out at that time, right? Sure. I mean, you want to be able to have and conserve your energy for moments of, of this nature. I feel that I may have had an early start to that. Uh, because of uh, my own condition with type 1 diabetes. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed with that at age 5 in 90, back in 1985 in Odepur. And um, even now, there's I just feel there's so much stigma around it. Yeah. Um, and the fact that uh, I was fortunate because my parents have been positive about yeah. it and, and I didn't have to go through the stigma I feel a lot of my other peers have had. Um, and so, again, this sort of teaches you um, in, in a very unconventional manner, teaches you that wisdom, right? Teaches you that balance between being patient and not being patient. Sure. And what the triggers for that are. And, and your own sort of uh, medical history, Abel, you get this, right? I mean, it's at a point where we're exposed to it in, in every area of our life. I, I imagine that just that lived experience is so valuable right? Being able to say that, yes, there's an urgency to things, and yet you have to sort of look at it from the long haul and look at the long game for sure. In, in thinking about that, I mean, you know, I actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the um, the diabetes piece, but even for all of these issues, right? Whether it's women's health, whether it's rural access, whether it's diabetes and other kind of preventive health measures, how much, especially in an era where things are so democratized, where information is so readily available, how much of a combat against disinformation um, do you have to try and achieve with some of these efforts? My biggest advocacy, Abel, has been to um, eradicate this misinformation. Yeah. 
I have no issues or challenges and I wouldn't have even been an advocate for type 1 diabetes if there was just information about it. Um, what has inspired me and why I feel it my duty to be able to go out and talk about type 1 diabetes is the very fact that, um, and, and, and this doesn't, has no background with money, economy, education, environment, none of this matters um, when it's come to the sort of misinformation one gets to hear about um, type 1 diabetes. What are some examples of that? I'm just curious, like that, that shock you that you have to cry and, and dispel that, disinforma- that misinformation. Do you have about eight hours? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I, I, I appreciate the question. And um, because it's something that I've been dealing with, it's been a big trigger. And the surprise is the fact that people, um, and again, the whole array of people, so it's not a specific type and right. it's not a specific country, have been very almost, I would use the word condescending of the fact that one can thrive with type 1 diabetes. Mm. As soon as I, you know, as soon as someone would learn that I have type 1 diabetes, I mean, the first sort of reaction has been that of shock or surprise to some degree. They've been surprised that I'm thriving. They're surprised that I'm healthy. They're surprised that I have two healthy biological children. They're surprised that I do sport. They're surprised I work, travel, what have you. And and so every aspect of type 1 diabetes, that is the real information is questioned. Um, And the reason it bothers me is that when someone is, you know, newly diagnosed with it, say at age five or six or nine or what have you, and at that time, someone implies that you cannot do any of those things. You can't thrive. Um, It just really takes your breath away. And I I don't want a child to be exposed to that because it's factually inaccurate. Um, And I know children who've given up because that's all they've heard. Um, They feel that, um, you know, their legs going to get amputated, their kidneys are going to fail. I've been on insulin for 38 years. By God's grace, as up till this moment, I have no underlying conditions. And, And I just want every child to know that, for them to know that they can be the same. It has to be managed. It's not a bed of roses. Yeah. It, it speaks to when someone hears your story and then you think about all the other empowerment issues that you're trying to really advocate for, for women, for children, for, for people to actually access health and get that prevention that they need. How, how much does trust play a factor here, not just the trust in hearing your own personal story, but even the trust of your family, the trust of your of your family's heritage and legacy. How much of a role does that play, especially for people who may not know about some of these things and they have to attach to something to be able to start trusting the information? I think it's the most important and the first step. Um, if I was to name one thing that's the most important or the first step, I think it is about building that trust. It is being about having that trust. And that goes both ways, Abey. I need to be able to have that trust in my partners and the initiatives and the projects that I wish to put my shoulder to the wheel for yeah. and be able to then reciprocate the same. 
um, it's the beginning of, of, as they say, of, of any relationship, right? Um, yeah. So I, I don't think that it, it's an exception here. And I personally have a lot of value for that. I think everything else can be built upon. Trust is something that we have to be able to bring to the table and grow from. Um, and it certainly helps me uh, to a large extent, to your point, um, when I'm talking about type 1 diabetes, where I've been able to experience this, yeah. I think, and especially in the rural areas where people are not, um, they don't perceive me as someone who's just trying to talk to them about uh, about a condition. Um, they, they realize very early on that, uh, my motivation is just to be able to provide the correct information and the choice is theirs then. Does that require a lot of community embedding in the sense that like, you really, really need to be on the ground. You need people who are living and working and, and being in the community so that that relationship develops faster and stronger and solidifies that much more. I think it plays an important role, but, you know, people like you are truly helping people like me do that, right? So even times when I'm not being able to be on on ground, someone's going to hear me who who hasn't met me or hasn't been at a village that I'm going to go to. So I, I truly thank people such as yourselves to be able to get that message and point across. Well, if our podcast can only air in the villages of Rajasthan, we could we could make more impact. I you, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. We all have cell phones in India. That's true. That's have, very we, true. We all have internet, and uh, <laughs> uh, so don't undermine what you do, Abhin. And and, and I, I mean that that brings a, a great point up, right? Being able to be in philanthropy and ensuring that the mission stays consistent and constant, and you know the vision of of your foundation is is ensuring sort of long-lasting relationships. I imagine that cultivating that relationship with people on the ground is is uh, vital to, to the work. It absolutely is. And I enjoy it. And it's something I, I like to do. Um, it, it helps me just as much. And I'm, I'm hoping it, it helps them too. Um, but to be able to get out and meet these people and know the stories and and know what's truly going on is um, is such an integral part of, of everything that I do. And uh, do you think that the the life of women in rural areas, because of the work that you're doing, how would you say it's different than 11 years ago, before you started this work? I hope the numbers have grown. I hope more people are realizing their work. I I don't feel that uh, I can do something by myself. So if if women or their roles or their own value is changing, even a little bit by what I'm doing, I consider myself extremely successful for having done that. Yeah. And I'm hoping that I can inspire some others to continue to uh, to do it as well. I'm, I'm, as they say, I'm a drop in that big ocean and, and hopefully yeah. I can get more to, uh, to join in whatever capacity, right? Um, right. It's, it's just taking the control and the ego away and um, just coming from a place to, um, to serve. There's, you're right. It's a village mentality. It takes a lot of, and support can come in so, so many different ways. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, We'll come back to our conversation with the daughter of the house of Mewar, Padmaja Kumari Parmar. 
Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, I am Odyssey dance artist Bijoyani Satpathi, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Hey, you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Padmaja Kumari Parmar. There's quite a contrast, of course, between those challenges that are deep in rural, very impoverished areas and trying to, in fact, empower women and children, and then being a part of the historic resort hotels group that is, of course, something that you have to marry on a daily basis. So how do you kind of, in some ways, merge and synchronize those contrasts to be able to be an effective leader? That's a great question, and, and I don't think I've been asked this before. Um, and the answer, I, I believe, is is simple, at least in my mind. I feel these aspects truly dovetailed into each other. One lent itself to the other, the hospitality industry, business, which was really a vision of, of my grandfather um, to continue to be able to preserve what we have but not at the cost of, like I said earlier, cutting corners for the people of Udaipur. This truly included them and this, you know, um, any success we as a family would have because of our hotel business would also run into the community and the city as a whole, which it did. Tourism, as we know, is is a, is a huge employment uh, provider, producer. Um, it has a lot of, uh, it has a huge positive domino effect. Um, and the fact that the people in, in the city, in Udaipur, uh, were also benefiting from it, it continued to build their trust that we as a family will always remain committed and focused to doing things for, for the entire town, not just for, for the family. And the foundation and, and, uh, and the museum in Udaipur have had a similar effect. Sure. And uh, and it's brought sort of uh, another way, maybe other of saying this would be it's brought a lot of the intangibles mm-hmm. um, in a tangible manner. Right yeah. now we're talking about values and legacy and what have you, but being put in a tangible manner through where, you know, there's a lot more business coming into the city. People's quality of life has increased because of that. Sure. So it's it's actually been a marriage of, of our values as well as the ground reality. Um, and that's aligned. I wonder if in that spirit then does giving and philanthropy and investment in the community, is that the main vehicle for a house of Meward to stay relevant in 2023 and beyond? I think it's uh, definitely something that's uh, most important to us at this point in time. I have a feeling that, you know, in 936, my ancestors thought about the time then uh, and made decisions based on that. And um, we've been able to continue uh, by knowing that change is the only constant. 
and not to fear that. So at, at this point, given, given the globalization, given the, 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 the state of affairs, the worldly state of affairs, if we can be focused on our philanthropy, if we can be focused on our business in a manner that's truly aligned, it'll certainly help. Uh, yeah. Will that change in the next few generations? I expect so. And yeah. I hope that uh, whoever is there then can continue to think on their feet and, and uh, realize what the values are, but, uh, but change and adapt to what the requirement is. You know, we're talking about this now and we're sharing this conversation about all the amazing work that you're doing and this relevance and the idea of cultural richness and heritage. And in a few hours, you may be having to go and pick up your kids and have dinner with them at the dinner table. And I'm curious for you, do you have daily reminders or even signature moments on that are small or big or, or whatnot that remind you of the fact that you balance being an Indian American with this amazing cultural heritage? Do I have reminders? Maybe not so much. I don't think I've ever left knowing who I am. Uh, and I humbly ask this question, what do I need to be reminded of? This mm. is just who I am, whether you put me in Iceland or America or in at the bottom of an ocean, um, right. it runs in every cell of my body. And so I would like to believe I, I don't need a reminder. And yeah. I, I hope I can con continue to stay aligned. I guess, are there are there elements of your life that are good markers of this, that particularly for your family, for you and your daily life, when you're not necessarily involved or engaged in the philanthropy or in the activities that are our moments. You know, they could be just the language. They could be the dress. It could be even the thought process. It sounds like it's fantastically woven into your life quite deeply. I, I think that system and, you know, because I've also been born and brought up um, in, in Odepur. So is that the reason? Maybe. Um, but um, I... I I do feel that I, I never feel removed from it. Is there anything that I do um, that makes me feel removed? I might go to a coffee shop and, and get a cup of coffee. Uh, yeah. uh, do I do that in Udaipur? Maybe not. So, you know, instances and experiences can be different, if you will. Yeah. But, uh, but that doesn't make me feel removed or distant from from who I am or what my values are for that matter. Will sure. I act differently in the coffee shop than I would in Udaipur? I would like to believe not. Do you get, do you get nostalgic uh, in some ways for that time? I feel very present in, in Udaipur at all times. I don't know if that's just yeah. part of my mental sort of uh, no, that, that's, <laughs> mindset that's incredible. Yeah. Or, or, or what have you. But the, the short answer to that question, I think, is no. Uh, yeah. But it may be because am I not thinking wide enough or far enough? I, I don't know. That might be one, one of the reasons. No, I, I think it's, it's amazing. And in fact, uh, it speaks a lot perhaps to your consciousness of that it's, you are engaged and you, and you feel like you're constantly being a part of that, that idea, that concept of Udaipur. Whether that's captured in time for you growing up or it's constantly evolving, it sounds like it's something that's, that's woven in. You know, as legacy and heritage 
and evolution for that matter are embedded so elegantly through your activities. And, and you mentioned just now that it's kind of constantly part of who you are and what you do. In the future, when people will reflect on your work and the impact of it, what do you hope they will say or how they'll feel about your legacy in particular? I hope I will always be remembered as someone who was aligned and authentic to the best of my ability. I think um, it sort of really puts together everything we've spoken about. Um, it doesn't matter where I am and what I'm doing. I, I, I hope I'm staying aligned to who I feel I am and where I come from. And I hope, you know, the next 1400 year uh, generations or the next 70 odd generations can feel proud of, of uh, their previous generations for having stayed true to their value system in a manner that makes sense to me. Um, I'm not trying to live someone else's life and I falter, I'm far from perfect, but uh, but it's I think it's uh, important to me. And I think we hear that a lot today, right? Uh, being aligned, being authentic is truly today's vocabulary. But I, I can assure you that um, it was understood back in 734 AD as well. I don't know what it was quite called then, <laughs> but I would like to believe uh, that was an important aspect of uh, of the way of the way of being um, since yeah. then well being aligned and authentic and sharing it with so many we're grateful that you were able to join us and share a little bit with us thank you so much Padmaja, for joining us um, i hope we can visit with you again sometime down the road i appreciate that Abe, and i really want to take this moment to thank you for what you do as well and and thanks for getting our voices out there and I'll continue to uh, to follow all your podcasts. So thank you for bringing that. Thanks so much, Padmaja. And you can find out more at friendsofmewar.org. Thank you so much again for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share and spread the word. And any rating or review is much appreciated. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. <laughs>